Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Past and Perfect. I'm Alice Thompson. And I'm Rachel Sylvester. And we're talking to extraordinary people who have overcome adversity in their early lives to achieve great success. We've talked to Tony Blair about his father's stroke and then his mother's death. Tom Daly about his father's illness and diving career. Ruth Davidson, who had two appalling accidents when she was a child and also suffered from depression. We talked to Lem Sisse about growing up in care. And Kirsty Allsop, who was her mother's carer for a long time in her teens when her mother had cancer. All our guests have shown an extraordinary sense of drive and determination. This isn't just a depressing pity party. What it is, is actually incredibly optimistic about how terrible things can happen to you as a child, but they can actually make you want to really achieve and to overcome your circumstances. All episodes of Past Imperfect are available to download from Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Our guest today is Adi Adepitan, the Paralympian and television presenter. He's faced challenges early in his life, caused by both illness and prejudice. So has everything changed for you very much? Have you been able to play basketball? What's happened? It's been an absolute nightmare during lockdown um, because the National Wheelchair Basketball League, which I I play for, I'm I'm one of the old fogies who are still hanging on playing it there. with all these young whippersnappers. But, yeah, it's, it stopped altogether. So, yeah, this is the first time since I started playing wheelchair basketball. I started playing wheelchair basketball when I was 13. I think I started playing in the league when I was about 14. So, over 30 years, this will be the first year that I haven't played in the wheelchair basketball league. I've been able to do some training. There's a basketball court not far from me, an outdoor court which I've been using. Um, I also play wheelchair tennis. Um, I used to play for, uh, I used to play on the world tour, so I got to quite a high level and I've been helping a friend of mine, Andy Lapthorne, train and prepare for the US Open. So I've got access to things, but there's other friends of mine who are really struggling, you know, who have uh, disabilities, who may not be playing sport at a high level, but for them, the social aspect, the fitness aspect, the getting out of their house aspect has is so important. And it's something that I've taken for granted because, you know, sport is only a small part of my life now. You know, I do other things. But for some of these people, it's a big thing, especially if you've, only recently been disabled if you've had an accident um, or you had something that's put you in a wheelchair and you found this outlet for you physically and mentally and then for six seven months it's gone and some of these people have been stuck in isolation at home um, and it feels like to me the disabled community have been neglected 
when it comes to the recovery um, the after Premier the lockdown. Because the Premier League has been up and running. Yeah. And they really made that a priority, whereas did you feel that the disabled oh, leaves were bo bottom of the queue? Yeah, it's just basically, uh, it's been forgotten. Yeah. It's totally been forgotten. lost your leg from polio as a baby that last month one of the really few sort of great pieces of news actually was the fact that wild polio has been eradicated from Africa how did that make you feel it was such a significant milestone um so as you said I contracted polio when I was um 15 months and I was born uh in in, in Lagos Nigeria uh, I just a quick run through of the background of this is that um you know during during the 70s when i was born uh, there was a massive eradication polio eradication um, program going on throughout the whole of, of nigeria and they were doing really well in in cutting back the numbers and my mum said that the vaccinators had come around to our house and uh it must be four or five months. And the way the polio was dealt out in those days, or the vaccination was dealt out in those days, is you got three doses. And the vaccinators came um, the first week and I got my first dose, second dose. And just uh, maybe a couple of days before, this is what my mum said, before they were coming to give me my third dose, I was rushed into hospital and I contracted polio. So oh, I was literally one dose or a drop away from not contracting mm. polio and who knows what would oh, my life would have been if that hadn't happened. And, and the funny thing is, I only found this out um, from speaking to my mum a few years ago when I made a documentary about polio and we started to talk about it. And I guess for my parents, it was so painful that it was something that they wanted to put in the past. And it was like a real shock to me. And I don't know, I, I, I don't even know how to absorb it and how to assess the situation that it was only a matter of a few days between me having polio and not having polio. <laughs> I am super lucky, super lucky that my parents had the wherewithal, they were able to gather the funds, borrow money from friends and family to move to the UK to make a huge sacrifice to give me another opportunity. And that, did, that didn't come without a, a, a big price and at a cost. You know, I, my older sister has got Down syndrome. And so my parents had, within the first three years, two children um, with a disability. And they realized that they needed to give us better opportunities because Nigeria and Lagos in the 70s wasn't kitted out for um, people with disabilities. about the, the time in Africa and sort of Lagos and yeah, a what little, it was like? Or uh, did you leave too young? Oh, I, I can remember a little bit. I mean, I, I, I used to have this reoccurring dream and it took me a long time to, to work out what was going on. And it was a dream of seeing trees, amazing, beautiful trees flying past me. Um, and Ever since then, I've always been really obsessed and fascinated by trees and forests. I love them. And I, I couldn't work it out what it was. And, and I, as a kid, I used to think, oh, maybe this was the road to heaven. Maybe this is what 
heaven looks like or another world, another life, a beautiful place. Um, and then my father passed away, sadly, in 2006. And we took him back to his village in Nigeria where we knew he would want to be buried uh, alongside his, his father and his mother. And when we were driving from the airport in Lagos to my, um, my father's uh, village in Ogu State, um, I saw those same trees. I saw those same trees and from the taxi, I, I saw them out the window and it just all suddenly clicked. You know, mm. 40 years later, I had this feeling. I was like, wow, I recognise this place. Um, even did you the feel smells. You were home? Yeah, I, I, I did. I did. And did it I, trigger other memories? It triggered loads of memories. And I suddenly remembered this would have been the road that we took to the airport from my parents' house when we were going to um, the airport to fly to the UK. Mm. And as a little child, I would have been looking out the window and I would have seen mm. probably those same trees. Amazing. And those were the last things, the last memory I have of leaving uh, Nigeria in 1976. You were 15 months old when you got polio. Mm -hmm. And did, were you then in hospital for a long time? So when I initially contracted polio, what I know, from what I know, I mean, I was so young to remember, this is what I was told, is it comes across, um, it manifests itself in a uh, form of a fever. So you get a real high temperature um, and my parents suddenly panicked. You know, they heard, they, or my mum did because my dad had, had travelled. And um, she got one of our relatives to rush me to the hospital. And I was in there with high fever. I was on a, put on a drip. Um, and the next morning I woke up and when I woke up, my mum said there was visible evidence of my leg, my left leg, just shriveling, you know. And so almost overnight? Yeah, overnight, she said. It was like that. I just, my, my physical being transformed. Um, it must have been a really difficult time for my, my mum and, and dad, you know. You know they're, they're, they're just coming to terms with my sister, who, who has um, who has Downs, and I think not much was known about it at, um, in in Nigeria during those times, and then suddenly, like that overnight, their baby son literally has polio and has a disability. And how long did you spend in hospital then? I don't know how long I spent in hospital, but I know that by the time I was three, my parents made that decision that you know I was not going to cope. In Nigeria, a child who couldn't walk. And I think I remember my mum saying, she suddenly saw me, I stopped walking and I started crawling around and my left leg, I was dragging it around. Um, and I was pulling it around because it wouldn't move and I had no control of it. And the floors are pretty dirty over there and I probably said I'd crawled outside and tried to play with the other kids and stuff like that and she just must have looked at it and felt horrified and said I can't allow my son to grow up in this he's not going to survive and the truth is she was right you know I I haven't got the statistics but I'm pretty sure if you look at the mortality rate for children with physical disabilities in Nigeria I probably wouldn't have survived mm. 
there's a very good chance that if my parents hadn't have brought me to the UK, mm. I wouldn't be here today. Mm. Um, and the other thing that I, I think is really important and it really sticks with me is the fact that my parents, they got their savings and they'd borrowed friend, money from friends and family to move to the UK, but they couldn't raise enough to bring my sister over. Um, and they that had- been so hard. It was an agonizing decision. Agonizing Who did they leave decision. her with? Um, so they left her with my dad's sister. And what were their they, jobs in Nigeria, your parents? Both my parents were teachers. My father was training to be a head teacher, and then I got ill, and then so he wasn't able to pursue that. And my mum was also a teacher, a primary school teacher. They then moved to the, to, to the UK, and when they moved to the UK, their uh, qualifications weren't accepted over here, so they would have had to retrain. I, in a way, was thankful that they didn't, because we moved to East London, and East London in the 70s was extremely racist. You know, there's no other way of putting it. It was um, not very diverse. We were uh, the first African family to move into our area. Um, I was only one of the few black kids to go to my school. And I couldn't imagine how difficult it would have been for my parents to try and teach in a school in East London um, as as African people. So yeah, I'm, I was happy, but in another way, it was really sad and frustrating for them. So what because, did they do instead? Well, yeah, they both retrained. My dad retrained as an accountant and he desperately tried to get a job in accountancy, but he couldn't, um, there weren't positions for, uh, he basically, because he was black, he was African, mm -hmm. he couldn't get uh, he couldn't get a job. So, and my mum retrained as well to try and work, and she tried to work for the civil service, but they really struggled, and they ended up working, you know, in Tate and Lyle, uh, Ford, uh, Dagenham. They and, and worked as cleaners. They took two, three jobs, uh, and they every job they did, they were always super overqualified. They were always the the, the cleaner with two degrees, or or, or the the security guard with with degrees and it was it was sad it was it was sad and I, I could see how much it affected them um, because coming to the UK uh, you know Nigeria is a commonwealth nation and they always looked up to the UK they looked up to the royal family you know they looked up to, to and they saw this country as a beacon of light and a beacon of of hope and equality and and freedom and then when they came here and they were met in their first sort of 10 15 years with quite a lot of hostility it was hard and even as a young kid seven eight nine years old i could see how tough it was for them was it really difficult for you as well because they'd come over just for you so there's a sense that the whole of the responsibility of that is on you and you're in this cold damp country that oh. probably felt fairly depressing. You don't even know. I, I, I think maybe, you know, part of that, the way they, uh, that, that weight of responsibility, even as a seven, six, seven year, year old, I felt it. You know, they, they, they would, and I, I don't feel bad for it. Some people might think it was harsh, but they would remind me quite regularly if I got into trouble, if I didn't work that hard um, at school, that remember your sister is still in Nigeria and you are the lucky one. So you can't waste time. 
That's tough. I, <laughs> it's really difficult. Yeah, it is, it is difficult, but I think it, it garnered, it enforced a sense of urgency within me, which I probably didn't know at the time, but I felt that I needed to achieve something. Mm. I needed to make something of my life and I needed to prove um, that I was kind of worthy. Did you have enough money? Was it? No, we were, we yeah. were pretty poor. Yeah. We were poor. We were we 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 were broke, and um, you know it was almost that stage where I I felt guilty to ask for presents at Christmas um, because I knew how tough it was for my parents, but they would try anything to get us stuff because. They felt guilty that they couldn't give us what they wanted. And unfortunately, um, my my dad was he's super he was a super, super optimistic guy and he was always talking about setting up a business, you know, doing stuff and one day our family were gonna do okay and we were gonna um, and we were go that all our problems would, would be over. But um unfortunately we didn't we didn't quite see that day. I mean he did so much, um, but it wasn't to his dreams, um, but I, I, I have, I remember us regularly. I remember having to go um, to collect to buy paraffin for our paraffin heater, and all of us standing round or sitting round the paraffin heater. Our carpets had holes in them. We had a sofa that was like that. That that if you weren't disabled, you would be after you'd sat on it for five <laughs> minutes because the wood would break through. We we. Not going on school trips and yeah, all of that stuff. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't like it was hard because the only time I realised that we were poor is if I got invited to friends' houses and I saw the stuff they had and I was like, wow. Um, at one stage, we would have like five or six of us sleeping in one bedroom, um, uh, and and then I go to a friend's house and they had the bedroom to themselves and like, wow. Was that relatives that had come over with you, or who? Were yeah, so oops, so my younger brother and sister, uh, they were born whilst we were in the UK. So I've got uh, a, a younger sister and a younger brother. Then my older sister came over. So there were four of us. We had a two-bedroom place, so four of us stayed there. Then my cousin would uh, came over, and and um, and two cousins would come over. And in the end, the house just got filled, you know, and we couldn't get, a, a, at the time we had a council place and we couldn't get anything bigger than a two bedroom house. But you, as I said, and it's not until you go to other people's houses, you know, you just, I just kind of thought everyone lived like that. Uh, I remember when, we, when the council fitted in double glazing and central heating, and it was incredible. To me, that was the biggest Christmas present we'd ever had to come downstairs and not see your breath because it was so cold um, was incredible. And, it was, and, and, it, and, and I remember feeling really happy because once we got the central heating and double glazing, I thought our house now looks more like those houses that we see in adverts on TV. And we feel more normal. I feel more normal, you know, and it was quite exciting. Like at school, did, were you? Did you feel different to the other children, either because of your colour or your disability, or 
the poverty? All of the above. Yeah. All of the above. Yeah, it's definitely, there was no way I was going to go to school and blend in, even though I wanted to. <laughs> Superly, I mean, as a kid, the last thing you want to do is stand out. You know, you don't want to give anyone ammunition to pick you out for, uh, for, for anything. Um, and, but unfortunately for me, I, my, my parents were, I mean, fortunately for me in one way, my parents were really determined that I should go to a mainstream school, um, which was a school for able-bodied kids, because at the time in the 70s and 80s, if you were disabled, you were forced to go to school for kids with disabilities. But my parents were like adamant that I should go to mainstream school, and they um, had almost like a legal dispute with the local education authority, Newham Education Authority, for the best part of seven, eight months, um, and they fought for me to go to this mainstream school, and I became the first child with a disability in Newham, the London Borough of Newham, to, to be allowed to go to a mainstream school, which was a big thing. Mm. Um, so actually, probably everyone in the school was expecting me anyway before I even got there. But on top of that, you know, on top of the fact that I had a disability and I walked on calipers, so I had um, this pronounced limp when I walked on, on calipers. Uh, if you've ever seen Forrest Gump and mm. you've seen that scene when he's running away from the bullies and he's got those iron rods... Um, I, I used to wear that. And then um, my mum made me, on top of all that, wear, but she bought me a pink checkered flared suit from, from Petticoat Lane Market because she thought this was the best thing or best sort of clothes <laughs> for me to wear on my first day of school. I mean, so you look smart. Yeah, yeah. yeah she like, wanted me yeah. to look smart, and she thought, you know, this was in fashion. Mm. This was the thing. I was horrified. <laughs> but I, yet she wore it. I, I had no choice. If you've ever met my mum, <laughs> I had no choice. If my mum came in now, but then once you bought now, it, you had to keep wearing it, didn't you? Because it's so expensive. Yeah, exactly. I, I mean, I remember when she bought it, I was in tears because mm. oh. I was like, I. I don't know how I'm going to cope on my first day of school. So did you get terribly bullied? Well, I think I would have had it not been for the fact that I was good at sport. And so on my first day of school, when I came into school dressed in pink checkered <laughs> suit, Afro hair, um, spoke with a broad Nigerian accent, yeah, um, and walking with a limp, I saw these kids playing football and immediately I was like, I looked at them and I thought, I'm as good as all of these kids. I'm as good as them. So she can join in. I, I asked them if I could. I asked them if they I could, and they looked at me and they thought, yeah, I, I can imagine. They must have thought, who is this freak dressed like this? Um, and they said no, but I, I, I persisted. And I remember the final playtime, two captains, there were two captains picking the team, and they uh, uh, finally agreed to let me play just to shut me up. And they picked two teams, picked me last, stuck me in goal, and within the first couple of minutes of being in goal, best football in our school, I've told this story a lot of times, but it's so true and I always remember it, but the best football in our school, a guy called Stuart Harvey, broke loose. He was one-on-one -on -one against me and I still remember it, being in goal with my pink checkered suit. I had a Parker coat. Remember the Parker coats with the fur oh, around yes. the hood and the mittens attached to the strings, yeah, yeah. To, the, to, to, to the coat. And Stuart came rushing towards me and he blasted this ball and I just went into action, into automatic, um, you know, my reflexes and saved this shot. And as I, I hit the concrete and by the time I got up, all the kids in the playground 
had their mouths open. They were all like gobstuck. So at then the, you, that yeah. was it, your reputation yeah. was set. And in that one moment, and I also remember a kid called Spencer Greenfield, he was a big, big kid in the school. He came up to me and he was like, that was amazing. It was like in proper East London. It was like, Addy, if anyone says anything to you about your, your effing leg, yeah, your, your dodgy haircut, your dodgy <laughs> suit, your, your, your strange name, come to me. And I sort them out because that was amazing. Oh, so it changed your now. whole life. Really. Yeah, just one second. it was, it was, it was like that. And I suddenly was really accepted. And I think I got quite a privileged pass. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. You were bullied a bit. What happened? It tended to be, you know, maybe... I think bullying sometimes, it comes out of insecurity, people's own insecurity, and sometimes jealousy as well. And um, I'm very... I was fortunate is that I was... My parents had always taught me to be quite forward and articulate and to not... Yeah, not shrink if somebody um, attacks you or says stuff to you. And, and I was quite quick-witted. And I think there was a lot of times if someone had said something about my disability, maybe a passing comment, yeah, some kids used to call me peg leg. Um, uh, the kids used to call me black monkey, um, you know, because there were times where if I got really tired, I would get on the floor and I would just sort of like crawl a little bit. And so they would make monkey noises. Um, and I would come back with uh, a quick, witty retort, you know, some sharp comment, and everyone there would start laughing, and then that person would suddenly take it to heart, and then it would get a little bit personal, and then that then it became difficult. Um, so in that respect, it was difficult. But then once I won over my friends, it was good. When it became complicated is when we always met new people. So if we're out and about, and people for the first time would see me, you know, they'd be like, who's this guy? Look at the way he walks. And, you know, I was one in East London at that time. There weren't many black people. And why did you stop using the calipers and start using the wheelchair? Because in some ways, a lot of people would think it would be easier not to have to use a wheelchair. Yeah, I, I, I certainly did during that, that period of time because there was a massive stigma around um, using wheelchairs. Yeah, I think uh, that 
it's easy to take for granted these days when people see myself and see people like Tony Gray Thompson or David Weir or Hannah Cockcroft because of London 2012 and the Paralympics and the way it's changed people's perceptions of disability. This wheelchair, my wheelchair here, which I'm pointing to, is seen with less of a stigma and there's more positivity around it. But when I was growing up, there were ideas or misconceptions that if you were in a wheelchair, you were slower, you know, mentally, educationally, you weren't as clever as other people. Um, yeah, you were a burden, you were a problem. And I would never have, you know, chosen to use a wheelchair, but I was really lucky. I was spotted by some physiotherapists who are based in Canning Town, and they worked at a, 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 a school for kids with disability called Elizabeth Fry School. And they were really ahead of their time, you know, because back in the 80s, no one knew about disability sport or talked about disability. It wasn't recognised. And they felt that the kids in the school were not getting um, the best preparation for their future lives and they thought that sport was going to be an incredible avenue to help disabled kids get in teach them independence and confidence and they'd heard about me um i went to a mainstream school but they'd heard about me because i was in the local newspapers for a sponsored walk i'd done for the school and they wanted me to play for a wheelchair basketball team that they'd set up called the new rollers and they just so happened just by luck to spot me as I was being raced through the streets of East London in a Tesco shopping trolley <laughs> by my mates um, because I couldn't keep up with them in my on my calipers. I Did they regularly do that? Yeah, we, we, we kind of like, back in those days, I mean, you don't see it that often anymore, but there used to be shopping trolleys strewn yes. all over the streets. It was everywhere. And, and we just one day, I would get tired trying to keep up with my friends. We just one day thought, well get in it, you know, my mate says, get in it, Addy, and we'll just push you around and we'll get to where we want to get to quickly. So that's how, we, that was my mode of transport <laughs> for a while. And these guys were happening to drop off some of the players and they live quite close to me from a basketball match and they saw me and they recognised me and pulled up and they said, you're Addy, aren't you? I was immediately just shocked that they knew who I was and my name. And they asked me if I'd like to play wheelchair basketball. And I was like, whoa no way, why am I going to get in a wheelchair? You know, that's a horrendous idea. But luckily for me, they were really persistent. They spoke to my parents um, and my teachers and they convinced me eventually after about four months to go to Stoke Mandeville. And I went to the junior wheelchair basketball games and um, was, first of all, overwhelmed by seeing so many people with disabilities because um, I went to an able-bodied school, so I'd never seen other disabled people. I was surrounded by able-bodied people, and I didn't even see myself as having a disability. I was kind of ashamed of my disability because I avoided walking past mirrors. Because when I walked past mirrors, that's when I saw my limp, and that's when I realised that I was disabled. So I kind of hid that whole part of my, uh, my life into the back of my mind. And then suddenly... I'm at Stoke Mandeville and I'm confronted seeing all these young kids, first time seeing amputees, people with cerebral palsy, people with different kinds of spinal cord injuries. And I was like, whoa, what's this? But they were all so confident and they were all so just like, they were, it was amazing. But what really tipped me over was I saw some guys from the Great Britain wheelchair basketball team who happened to be training. 
And these guys were unbelievable. They were in state-of-the-art wheelchairs. Their wheelchairs were funky colours. The wheels were angled with this camber, which I wondered why. They were spinning round. And, and that, they really and smash each other up, don't they? Smashing it. Exactly. Really aggressive. Exactly. So imagine, you're 12 years old, first time you've ever seen this, cool, cool chairs. And then for the first time, I see a guy who's a double amputee with no legs go down the court and he gets smashed by another guy who's got a spinal cord injury. He flies <laughs> out of his chair and you just see this guy with no legs rolling like a bowling ball down, down, down the basketball court. And, like you, and his chair flying the other way, sparks all over the place. You can smell the burning and, and you're like, whoa. And there's no histrionics, no argument. The guy like fist bumps the guy who's t- taking him out of the chair, gets back in the chair, and then they carry on playing. And they're shooting three-point shots, hitting reverse layups, doing wheelies. And I'm like mesmerised. And the thing for me, I think the, um, the, the lightning, light bulb moment for me was I looked at these guys and I didn't see their wheelchairs. What I saw was incredible elite athletes. Mm-hmm. These guys were, to me, they were like gladiators. And, and, and I was like, they're better and cooler than any of my friends, any of my able-bodied friends I knew. And suddenly I thought, I'm at home. This is my tribe. I found my tribe. I found where I want to be. Were your parents incredibly supportive? Were they pleased that you had finally found your thing? Yes and no. You know, for them, they wanted me to take up um, sport because they thought it would help me walk. They thought it would make me fitter and that the physios would give me treatment to help me walk because their whole thing was about walking. They were really worried that being in a wheelchair would hinder me and that it would um, give me, it make me visual and people would discriminate against me because of me being in a wheelchair. So they had a sense that walking was normal. Walking was normal, and it was all about walking to them. And I, um, you know, I'd been hooked at this time, and by this point I was just like, there was no looking back. And so we ended up having this really difficult battle of my parents saying, no, 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 no sport. They, that my dad, when I got my first wheelchair, he threw it out the house, um, when it yeah. first arrived and I had to sneak it into our back garden and I hid it under some tarpaulin in the back garden. So your parents were really difficult about you being in a wheelchair but I can imagine that now as a, as, as a mother that you'd want to normalise your child so desperately, wouldn't you? Mm. To look at it the other way around, back then I was like furious with my parents but when I look at it in hindsight, look at it from now from, uh, with experience... They were just trying to create the best life for me. You know, they moved over from Nigeria to the UK to give me as many opportunities as possible. And for them, they saw the path to opportunity as, one, looking as normal as possible and being as able-bodied as possible, but two, education. And they felt that um, being in in, in a wheelchair, you know, and taking up sport was going to affect all of those opportunities. I I remember my dad saying to me, you know, you're going to go to university, you're going to study, and all of that stuff. And I 
in 19, it would have been like 1989, I said, no, I'm going to play wheelchair basketball and I'm going to become a star. I remember saying that. And when I look back now, I think partly how cocky was I, you know, and secondly, I think, well, of course my parents would have thought I was bonkers because there was no avenue back then. I, I suppose now it's slightly easier, um, still not as easy as it should be or still there are obstacles in a way but for a child with a disability to find a path in sport to be successful and kind of earn a living and there but were not, no role models then were no there? 1988 1989 there was nobody who was there was no one there was hardly anyone on tv with this but well i burst into tears when i discovered that ian jury had polio this was the first famous person who was like me. And I, I remember just being really, feeling so emotional about it. But he was a very small example. And then on top of that, I didn't hardly see any black people on TV. And there was always a negative perception of, of, of black people on TV. So yeah, there was no, no one for me to follow. It must be getting hot outside. As you can hear, the air con's just come on. It's fascinating that you wanted to become an international sports star and you did, didn't you do weightlifting and tennis as well as yeah. basketball? Do you think that was somehow proving that your disability just wasn't going to hold you back? You were going to be a champion partly, regardless? Partly that, but I'd also say the people that I met, the group of people that I met at Stoke Mandeville and uh, that I grew up with were remarkable. I met a group of young disabled people similar ages to me we became friends and we all started playing in the same team um sadly a few of them have passed away now but they just i'd never seen people with so much drive and ambition and also they were really quite we are going to prove to society they were rebellious we were like everyone in in this world thinks that we haven't got a chance. Everyone in this world thinks that because we are disabled, we're, we're, we're not cool, we're, 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 we're not gonna be successful. And so these guys were brazen. They were like, um, you know, they, 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 they all had cars, so they got mobility cars. They had amazing girlfriends, like all the women no. at Stoke Mandeville at these, at these basketball tournaments fancied them. You know, they were great athletes. And they were talking, not like my friends were talking about, oh, when I leave school, I'm, I'm, I'll get a job or, you know, and work for my dad or do an apprenticeship or stuff like that. Biggest ambition you'd hear was someone going to university. But this is the first time people saying, I heard people saying, we're going to go to the Paralympics. We're going I'm going to try and become the best player in the world. You know, we're going to we're going to become superstars. And that rubbed off on me. Cuz I looked at them and I just thought, wow, look at these guys. You know, and my part the basketball team that I joined at a young age called the Tottenham Tigers were um sponsored by a nightclub in North London near near Edmonton called Manhattan Lights Night Nightclub. It's near Alexandra Palace. Um and it was amazing because this, this was like late 80s, early 90s. And from nowhere, the owner of the nightclub 
decided that he was going to give tens of thousands of pounds to a wheelchair basketball team. So they sponsored us our kit. Uh, we had uh, a bus. We traveled around the country and around the world playing basketball tournaments. But the thing that was even more amazing is that we got free entry to the nightclub <laughs> on, on, on the and weekends. The yeah, well, listen, this is, this is the thing. I'm, I, I went to a club for the first time when I was 15 with these guys. They were all older than me. They were like 18, 19. I was quite a good dancer. And I, I, remember, I remember going to this club for the first time with, with a group of guys in wheelchairs. And they, they were straight to the dance floor, in the middle of the floor, took over the floor, dancing, and all the women loved them, loved them. And I was like, wow. What did your parents do then? I mean, how tough were they on you? Did they keep saying, you've got to get back, you've got to go to university? Yeah, yeah, to... and, and it, came to, it came to a head. The big moment came to a head just before my GCSEs. It was the year of my GCSEs. had my mock exams in December, and I had got... I, I wasn't that interested in powerlifting, but I was really light and really strong. And I broke the British... I had a go, and I broke the British junior powerlifting record. Um, and I became British junior record holder and they selected me to go to Miami to the world championships and I was just like I was more interested in wheelchair basketball but I was thinking Miami yeah. I never left the country like, I get to go to Miami for the world championships this could be awesome I, I remember Miami Vice and thinking yeah it's gonna be like that I'm gonna go there meet Crockett and Tubbs and wear a cool suit and all of that stuff and do some powerlifting on the side but um when I told my dad and showed him the letter, he said no. He said, you have to study for your mock exams, you're not going. Are you furious? I was, I was furious, I cried, I was super upset. I remember speaking to one of my friends and he said to me, look, the only way you're gonna be able to do this is you're gonna have to leave home. At 16, And, and I thought, young. Yeah. yeah, it was very young. Mm. But my, a lot of my friends had moved out, my disabled friends who I said were super independent. and. I remember one of them saying to me, look, you're disabled. What you need to do is write a letter from your dad saying he's kicking you out of the house, forge his signature, his signature and send it to the housing office and tell them that you have a disability. And he said, because you've got a disability, right, they're going to put you on the priority list. And I was like, well, and he said, no, yeah, you do it, do it. And also these two physios who had the basketball team, they were amazing people. And they, they, they didn't know about all of this plan to leave the house. But what they'd done for everyone in their team and in their junior um, club was when you got to 16, because when you're 16, you're allowed to drive if you're disabled they bought us all 10 driving lessons. So they bought me 10 driving lessons on my 16th birthday because they were so, um, they felt so important that you learned to drive. So I took the driving lessons past, I got a mobility car and that arrived at the same time after I'd sent the letter in that my house arrived, uh, that I'd got a letter from the council saying that I was, I, I was they were gonna give me a house um, and I just left. So it would have been, I would, 16, about to turn 17. Did you say goodbye to any of them? No. So you, you didn't talk to your parents before you went? Just, 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 just disappeared. Left, what about your siblings? To, yeah, they were. I, I used to go back and see them when um, my parents weren't there. 
and you know they were devastated they were really sad but I used to like just go and talk to them and make 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 sure they were okay and stuff and I remember speaking to my my brother at the time I was my sister and saying oh daddy says he's not going to last a week he'll be back within a week and I think that made me more determined and I didn't speak to my dad or my mum started to come I I, I eventually came round because my mum was so devastated to let my mum know where I lived and she came would come to see me sporadically but I didn't make up with my parents for about 10 years um, so how did you make up in the end so I was sort of we were my mum was thrown out a, a line for us to me and my dad to start talking so we talked sort of a little bit and I got selected I mean, first of all, I went to Spain because um, I went and played basketball professionally in Spain for two years. Um, and when I came back, I got selected to go to the Sydney Paralympics. Um, Did you tell them you had? I said to them I was going away. I didn't say I was going to the Paralympics. I said I was going away again. But then my dad saw me in the local newspaper for the first time and said, East London wheelchair basketball star represents Great Britain, Newham's finest or Newham's own. Um, and then my mum saw me on the TV in the opening ceremony in Sydney. And my mum had given me a mobile phone. And she called me on the phone <sighs> whilst I was in the opening ceremony going round. So you're and, actually in the stadium? Yeah, in the stadium <sighs> um, with Team GB. They'd just called us out and I was going round, all my teammates were around me. Phone rang, picked up, <laughs> and it was my mum said, You are in Australia? What are you doing in Australia? And I was like, I'm in the Paralympics. She's like, ah. And that was like the first time they realised that I'd made it into the Paralympic team. Um, and when what I did got, your dad say? Well, when I got back, went home to see see my my mum and my parents. Um, my dad came out and he was in tears and we hugged and yeah, we made up. Did he say he was proud of you? Yeah, he did. Yeah. He did. He, he, I, I saw one of the newspaper clippings on his desk, which he'd hidden, and, but he was quite proud of. And did and, you get a medal? Uh, not in Sydney, but in Athens. Well, the following year, I got a world championship. We won a silver at the world championships. And then four years later in Athens, we won a bronze, and then we won a gold at the Paralympic World Cup. But I, I do remember quite funnily and fondly um, when relatives would come round and my dad would show um, them pictures in the paper and say, I always <laughs> knew he would be good. Ah. I always knew he would make it. Um, so, yeah, we, 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 we made up. And um, Did it, it take you a while to forgive them, though, or to forgive your father? No, because, I mean, I was angry, but I kind of, I knew how hard things were for them. I saw what they went through. You know, my mum had a breakdown, a nervous breakdown, when I was about 11, 12 years old from just all the stress, mm. you know, um, and, you know, my dad, I'd regularly hear them talking with each other. We weren't supposed to hear, but I'd hear them talking about the abuse they'd taken at work and, you know, the names that they were called and stuff like that. And I know, I knew how difficult it was for them. Did you try and spoil them then once you had made it? Did you try and buy them anything or? I've, I felt really, really sad that my dad passed away in 2006 and didn't get to see I think my probably the beginning of my career and the best moments for me started in 2012 you know and with the I, London Olympics yeah with the London Olympics 
hosting the London Olympic Games um, and and hosting the main show on Channel Four with Claire Balding. Mm. I mean, Claire Balding at, at, at the time she's I mean she still is now a giant mm. in sports broadcasting. And for my dad to have seen that moment would have been amazing. And I still remember my dad got really, really ill. And I retired in 2006 because I wanted to spend more time with him. And I remember, you know, he, he was badly ill. And I knew he, he died not long after this moment. But I remember sitting by his bed and chatting with him. And he started crying and said that he was ashamed that he hadn't made a success of himself and he felt that he'd let us down because he said he had nothing he'd worked really hard and he had nothing to give us um and he told me to get his checkbook and i was like i don't want any money from you dad i know you haven't got any money and he wrote me a check for 50 quid and he said look you know please take this this is all i've got and all that and i was just like I, I never, never ever cashed it. And I was just like, I don't need it. And I said to him, you know, you never let us down. I said, the sacrifice that my mum and yourself made coming, bringing us to the UK, that's all we needed. That is the biggest gift you could have ever given us. You're now married and you're about to have a child, aren't you? So it is rather extraordinary in a way because, you know, you're going to see it from a parent's point of view now. I, I, I think it's it's spurned me on and it's something that's fueled me for years because I've wanted uh, uh, children and a family for a long time. And I've always thought about this and I thought about this with my wife. My wife is white and I thought, we're going to have mixed race children. Um, and who knows, they could our kids could have a disability and we do want to adopt at some stage so who knows what type of um, children we, we will have but I want them to have the best opportunity possible I, 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 don't, I think there's nothing more heartbreaking than to look at a child in the eye and, and see that your life is going to be really tough you know I, get to, I go to schools and I get asked to go to schools, I've written children's books, um, to talk about my children's books, but to talk to kids, you know, um, about challenges and about, um, you know, building their confidence. And it does break my heart because I tell a lot of these kids, you know, if you work hard, you know, if you believe in yourself, you can achieve absolutely anything. But I know, in all honesty, when I look at some of those kids in those inner city schools, I know it's going to be really, really hard. And it really breaks my heart when I look at them and I look in their eyes and I see so much hope, how much they want, all the things that they want. And I think it's going to be tough for you. And I just don't think it's fair. So for me, my mission has become to try and create equality. It sounds like this really woke thing to do, but I don't care. People can call me woke. People can call me whatever politically correct things they want, it doesn't bother me. You know, the only thing that bothers me and that, I'm, that I think is important is my mission, and that is to make life easier for future generations. Do you feel that your disability is something to be overcome, or is that almost a patronising way of thinking about it? It's just part of who you are? 
Yeah, I, I, I don't know whether it's patronising or not, but it, it is part of who I am and it's something that I've learned to accept. And I think, in all honesty, we all have something in us that uh, about us that makes us feel insecure. Not it's just mine is more is is easier to see, or that used to make me feel insecure. You know, it, some people it might be they wish they were a little bit taller. Some people might wish, you know, they they could speak another language. Everyone has something, um, and I look at my my disability in that way. But to me, I've always felt that actually, and I've only learned in the last few years that actually disability is and, and all things all kinds of prejudice are more about society than they are about the individual and looking back at your three-year-old self say coming over to Britain what would you want to say or to your parents I'd love to give my parents a big metaphorical hug and say that you guys are going to bring up amazing kids. You know, you guys, uh, you, you guys, the, the sacrifice that you guys have made will be worth it. And to myself, I, I just say, keep going for your dreams. Surprise yourself as much as possible and don't be afraid to make mistakes. Uh, uh, mainly because when I think about when I was younger, if somebody had said to me when I was younger that I would have achieved and done all the things that I've done today, even with my confident self back then, I would never have believed it. You know, and I think for a lot of people, you know, who sit at home, I was sitting in a council house in East London, looking out the window at planes flying past, wishing that I could be on those planes, traveling to exotic countries. And there are a lot of kids who'll be like that will be wishing and thinking this is so far removed and so far away from where I am but I want people to know that everything is possible it is absolutely possible Adia Defitan thank you very much for talking to us thank you Imperfect was presented by me Rachel Sylvester and me Alice Thompson it was produced by Lucy Ditchmont the executive producer was Matt Hall. It was a Wireless Studios production. You can hear Past Imperfect on Times Radio and download the podcast from Apple Podcasts, ACAS, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.